Welcome to the Real Life Enlightenment Podcast, a highly imperfect podcast full of ideas that we have found to be enlightening, intersharing with the hope that it will, in turn, bless someone else's life too. Hi, everyone. We are back to talk more about The Explosive Child by Dr. Ross Green and share some of our takeaways with you. And this is the last four chapters, chapters eight through 12. And in these chapters, um, Dr. Green is going to um, share some things that might be getting in the way of plan B working well. And he talks about applying it in our families and at school. And um, there were lots of great insights that we are excited to share with you. Yes, this is, this is good stuff. I, I was kind of tempted to not read the last few chapters of the book because I felt like he'd already made his points and it might not be worth my time, but it was, it was really, really, they were really good um, chapters. So I'm really happy we get to talk about them tonight. One quote, just to start with, um, as a reminder for the framework of this whole thing, um, Dr. Green says, quote, your kid's challenging episodes occur when the demands being placed on him exceed his capacity to respond well. And so um, if you haven't listened to the former episodes where we've talked about this, episode six, eight, and 12, then you'll want to go and listen to those first. If you're really pressed on time, <laughs> then at least listen to just episode 12, and that will help you understand a lot of what we're talking about here. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So just a quick review of um, plans A, B, and C that he talks about in the book, just for those who it might not be fresh in your mind. Um, so plan A is when you have a concern and you come to your child and you have a concern in mind and you have a solution in mind. And you basically know what the outcome's going to be going into it. Um, and you wanna to talk your, to your child about it. And then plan C is where you have a concern, but maybe it's not as pressing or it's something that you can put on the back burner. So you're not trying to solve it right now. You can just table that for later. Um, and then, or like if there's something difficult with your child and you just can't deal with it in the moment, then you're just gonna deal with it at another time. And then plan B, um, the goal is to learn about your child's concern, concerns um, by using empathy. And then you're going to add your concerns to the conversation. You're going to resist the temptation to put your own solutions on the table, but instead you're going to collaborate with your child as you invite him to implement the agreed upon solution that you agree on together. So plan B is really great when plan A is not working out. Uh, usually if you have a kid doing undesirable behavior, um, throwing a fit, trying to run away, fight or flight, screaming, anything like that, chances are there, there was some plan A going on that it was a grown up trying to get a child to do something in the way that they were doing it really wasn't working out. Plan B is a much better way if you have a child that has some of that maybe defiance or resistance or doesn't handle pressure well. Plan B is a really good way to go about that. Absolutely. And plan A does work sometimes. And for some kids, they are okay with, they do well with plan A. Um, 
but for kids with um, challenging behaviors, a lot of times plan A is not going to work. It's going to make it worse. So getting ahead of it by using proactive plan B, which is um, using this collaborative approach when they're calm and not in the moment is really the ideal that you're working for um, towards. You can also use emergency plan B when they're in the heat of the moment. It's not as ideal, um, but it is an option as well. And he talks about all of that too in the book. Um, so if you have been listening along to these episodes about this book, um, and if you've tried plan B and maybe it didn't go well, I just want to say, don't get discouraged. Um, it does take practice to get good at plan B. The first time I tried it, I was using it with my daughter and I missed some of the steps and I kind of, I got parts of it and I walked away feeling like, okay, I'm, it was okay, but not awesome, but I've been using it a lot. And I feel like I'm gaining more confidence as I'm using it more and I'm getting a little better at it. So I would say, just keep practicing it. Um, and then Dr. Green in chapter eight, he goes through some patterns that might be getting in the way of plan B working out, um, well. So I just wanted to go through some of those in case you're seeing these as you're doing this with your child. Um, so one of the things is maybe you haven't tried plan B yet, um, only plans A and C. This could be lack of confidence or concerns that it won't work. But if you don't ever try plan B, then you and your child will never get good at it. And you, it really is one of those things where you learn as you go. So just dive in and, and give it a try. And even if you do plan B, sorry, this is the no. perfectionist in me. If you do plan B imperfectly, it's okay. Like <laughs> It's fine. You're still gonna get further because you're trying something new with your child. Um, sorry. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Even if you only do the empathy step and the other things aren't really refined yet, then your child's still going to benefit from you showing empathy and trying to hear their point of view. So totally. Great. Yeah. And if you forget the empathy step, like I did the other day, but you, you jump straight to solutions, but you're having your child come up with them again, like that's still, it's still prevented the meltdown for the kid at this point in time when I was like, okay, can you help me come up with some solutions here? And yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it helped a lot still, even though I like wasn't as good as it could have been, it was better than it would have been. Yes. I love that perspective. That's great to keep in mind. Um, another pattern that might be getting in the way is maybe you tried plan B, but you're remote, you're mostly relying on emergency plan B instead of proactive plan B, which I just mentioned a minute ago. So emergency plan B is when you're in the heat of the moment, um, you might be more rushed. It's less ideal circumstances. I did this with my son the other day. It was a rough day. It was yesterday, actually. And um, we were driving and he was so dysregulated, like screaming. Um, this is one of my older sons. And I, I kind of took him out of the car. I just pulled into a parking lot and we walked over and sat down on a bench together. And I just did an emergency plan B with him right there. It wasn't ideal. He was totally dysregulated. Um, but I still went through the steps with him and he was able to calm down to a degree. He was still kind of upset. Um, it wasn't perfect, but I do think it helped to do emergency plan B as opposed to not doing it. So it still can help. Um, and 
So there's a better, but there is a better chance when you use the proactive approach. And then also maybe you're entering plan B with a preordained solution, which is more like you're using plan A. So it's okay to have ideas, but if you come up with the solution and you're like, this is how it has to end up, um, then both the concerns of both parties aren't there, the you're not working collaboratively. So that might be a roadblock. Um, another roadblock, maybe you're agreeing on solutions that aren't realistic or that you both don't agree on being satisfactory. Or maybe you're trying to bake the cake without one of the key ingredients. And we just talked about that and it still can be helpful. So that's not all bad. Um, but just trying to get it to the point where all the ingredients are there can also be very helpful. Um, and then another one is the empathy step never gets started because the kid responds with, I don't know, or with silence. And this happened with um, one of my kids the other day and everything I said, he just kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, I have no idea. And so it was just was kind of hard to like get to the root of it. It took a while, um, but Dr. Green points out, just give your child time to think and don't rush them. And ideally you want to do this at a time when you have some alone time with the child and there's not gonna be disruptions um, so that you do have that um, time to give your child to think. And part of this, he might not know what his concern is or maybe his concerns have been dismissed for so long um, because he's just not used to thinking about them. He's so used to plan A that he's just kind of gearing up for that approach. Like, okay, my parents just gonna tell me what's going on and, and what I'm in trouble for and what the consequence is. Um, and so, yeah, he just might think he's in trouble. And this was really an epiphany for me. Um, Dr. Green points out that kids with challenging behaviors are used to getting in trouble when their parents talk to them about something concerning. So they do shut down. So I've been prefacing my plan B conversations with, you're not in trouble. I'm not upset with you. I want to understand your thoughts and feelings about it. Um, either before the I've noticed that part or right after it. Um, so one thing you can do is if, you're, if your kid is just kind of being silent or saying, I don't know, is you can drill a little deeper and say, well, let's think about it for a second and rephrase the question a different way. And if they give a little bit, you can say, tell me more about that. Um, another thing is he might have things to say that he knows you don't want to hear and thinks it will cause a fight, or maybe he forgot um, and didn't understand what you asked or kind of got distracted with his thinking and wasn't really clear on what you said or kind of went over his head. Um, you can clarify if he, under if he didn't understand what you're asking. Um, he also might have trouble putting his thoughts into words. So you could say, do you know what you want to say, but you're having trouble finding the words to say it? And he also might be buying time. Um, so you can, again, you don't want to be rushed. You want to give him some time to think. If you've given him time to think and he, and you really think that he doesn't know what the concern is, then you could give him some educated, um, guessing or hypothesis testing based on experience just to see if anything resonates like could it be this thing or um you could say let's think about our problem solving options so just kind of throwing things out there that they might kind of grasp onto 
this then, one is oh sorry no, there this one is really um common <laughs> for my boys i when i try to do the empathy with them i get nonsense answers like bah <laughs> or um just silence in it um i try to not let it drive me crazy and um remind myself that they're not doing it to try to drive me crazy they're they might you know all of these options but i think it's also a skill to stop and think even for us as adults stop and think wait what was going on in my head at that time or why do i find this to be difficult and they will get better at describing what they're thinking and feeling the more that we help them with it and so rushing through this sometimes we'll have to because you know life is busy sometimes but um right i think if we really can take the time to help them learn to think about what they were thinking or think about what they were feeling that it's a really good skill for um, challenging children to have in general and that alone can help them have less challenging episodes yes definitely um, also you can use more drilling with them and um, dr green points out that your best bet is to continue reflective listening so restating what the child said if they said if they gave you a little bit restate it back to them with a clarifying statement such as uh, maybe you ask them um, I know I noticed that you're not eating dinner lately what's up and they might say I don't like it okay you don't like it can you say more about that so kind of encouraging them to expand on that rather than just I don't like it so you can get a little bit deeper the root of the problem and remember not to take it personally it's okay if they don't like <laughs> <Yeah>. your dinner <laughs> right okay exactly um and then i like that dr green said as your child feels that his concerns are being heard he will become more receptive to hearing your concerns so that's just kind of nice to keep in mind um it goes both ways and then he also said that challenging episodes provide very important information about unresolved, unsolved problems you may have missed or failed to prioritize. That's perhaps the only useful thing about such episodes. They let you know there's still work to be done. Um, I love this point of view. I love kind of the positive spin on it um, that we can learn from these challenging episodes about things that we still need to work on with our kids. So. Um, that just kind of gave me a little bit of hope. And then he said, along the way, be sure to look in the mirror and take stock of the progress you're making. And I love that as well, to not forget. Sometimes I feel like, oh man, this is so hard. And then I look back and think, wait a second, we've actually made progress. Like this particular thing isn't as hard as it used to be. And this thing isn't as hard as it used to be. So even though this current thing is hard, these other things, we've made a lot of progress in them. And just remembering that can kind of give you momentum and to keep going forward. Um, and then in chapter 10, he talks about family matters. And this one really hit home for me. Um, I've mentioned in previous episodes that there's a lot of conflict with my kids um, between siblings. And I'm talking about almost all day long, um, almost all the time. And it's really heated, really just like, they're very sensitive and every little thing drives them crazy and they respond with big emotions. So it's a 
a huge um, stressor in our home. And it's um, so hard uh, for me as a mom to hear my children constantly. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It is hard. It is stressful. And then everybody gets amped up. Um, if like two of them are fighting and then the others get sucked into it and then my stress, stress levels go up, my husband's go up. We're all just kind of super stressed out. <laughs> so um, this was a really good chapter for me. I really like the things that he had to say about it. Um, and he points out that it's not uncommon for ordinary quote unquote um, siblings to direct their greatest hostility toward one another, but that these acts can be more intense and frequent and traumatizing when one of the siblings is behaviorally challenging. And um, I'm going to say that a lot of my children are behaviorally challenging, depending at the, on the time of the day. Um, but I don't only have one in this category. And so it does, it can be really difficult. And if you are in that situation, um, I hear you and I feel you and I know that it's really hard. So you're not alone there. Um, but you can use plan B with your children, like between siblings, and it, it can be very helpful. Um, so he points out that parental attention is never distributed with complete parity. And parental priorities aren't ever the same for each child in any family. So for example, um, one child might need extra help, like lots of help with homework, whereas others might need, not need as much. Or one might have more difficulty falling asleep at night. I have one like that, um, that it takes some hours. And then others might not need that much attention at night to fall asleep. Um, so that you should resist trying to treat your behaviorally challenging child the exact same as you do with your kids without behavioral challenges. And in all families, fair does not mean equal. So when siblings complain about disparities in parental expectations, it's a good opportunity to empathize and to educate. There was an example in the book about a girl, um, it was Jennifer, and she, um, when she would get frustrated, she had like low frustration tolerance. She would sometimes swear and her mom noticed that when she was kind of getting after her about the swearing, then Jennifer would shut down and their conversation, like they, she wasn't able to reach her on any level. Whereas if she kind of let the swearing, like just kind of bypassed it and then talked to her, um, she was able to get her to open up more about like get to the root problem, but without bringing up the swearing and her sibling um, was saying, it's not fair. You're letting her swear. That's wrong. We don't do that in our home. Why are you like basically favoring her and letting her get away with swearing? And the mom was trying to explain that, um, it's, there's other things she's working on with her child and that she is going to get to the swearing, but she needed to work on the other things basically first. And that was kind of hard for her brother to understand, but, um, you know, that's just, an example. Um, but to resolve disputes and disagreements between siblings, you can apply um, plan B. And the ingredients are the same, but your role now moves to that of a facilitator. So just like any other problem, um, problems between siblings can are often highly predictable. So proactive plan B is still um, the preference to emergency plan B. 
So you're going to start off by identifying and clarifying concerns of both siblings. And this can't, this empathy step or this like trying to find out the concerns is often better to be done in separate discussions with both siblings before bringing them together to discuss um, potential solutions. Just so there's not like the back and forth, um, just do it separately at first. And then you wanna ensure that the agreed upon solutions address the concerns of both of the kids and are realistic and mutually satisfactory, just like in any um, plan B scenario. So, um, after you talk to the kids separately, then you're going to all come together, you and the, and the kids that you're talking to, the two kids. So an example of what that might sound like or look like, you might say, I've talked with both of you about the problem that you've been having playing with toys together. And I thought it would be good to come up with a solution together. And then you're going to restate the one child's concern and make sure that it's correct. And then you're gonna restate the other child's concern and make sure that's correct. And then you're going to state your own concern. For example, um, and I'm concerned because when you guys are having trouble sharing toys, you end up hitting each other and someone gets hurt. And that's not the way I want people to treat each other in our family. And so then the next step would be invite. And you could say, I wonder if there's a way or do you guys have any ideas? And then if they bring one to the table, then you could say that's one idea. Um, or maybe another idea. They bring another idea to the table. You could say, let's hold on to that idea in case we can't come up with anything else. Like if one kid doesn't agree with that idea, you could say, well, let's hold on to it. And let's see what else um, comes up. And then once there's an agreed upon solution, then you're going to restate it. For example, so let's think about what we're deciding here. And then after restating the solution, you could say, we'll have to see how this solution works. If it doesn't, don't start hitting each other. Just let me know so we can keep working on it. And I like um, kind of giving that preface like, okay, this might not work out, but if it doesn't, don't resort back to what it was before. Let's make a new plan together, like as a team, kind of a concept. Um, so I think this is great. I have not tried it between siblings yet, but um, I'm excited to because I think it could be very helpful. I think it is a fabulous idea. I, I did like half a plan B with a student in my preschool the other day and it worked out really well. <laughs> um, one student was happy and playing and the other student was in a corner crying because the first student wasn't playing with her. And I didn't really want to involve the happy student because <laughs> they were fine. But um, I just went to the crying student and said, hey, I, I see you're upset. Do you want to tell me what's up? And she let me know all of her concerns. Oh, so-and-so is my friend and isn't playing with me. And I'm really sad because I want to play with that person. And so then I said, hmm. So your friend wants to play something else right now, but you're sad because you want them to play with you. I wonder if there's a way if, uh, and then the thing is your friend gets to choose what they play, but I do know you want to play with them. I wonder if there's a way for your friend to choose what they're playing and for you to play with your friend. 
And it was like this light bulb went off like, oh, I can just play that new game that my friend's playing. And so it was like a half in between. And I, I just felt like it went so well. Yeah, that's, it's so nice when you're trying it out and you can see it working. And it's just, it's really exciting. It's kind of been a lot of fun. Like it's my new experiment <laughs> with, yes. with children. Same here. I'm always, I used to be like, oh, there's another problem that is unsolved and it's another explosion. And now I'm kind of excited. Like, oh, I get to use plan B. I get to try this. This is all right. Bring it's it making on. Making us more curious and less frustrated with our children. Yes. yes I love that. Okay, and then um, Dr. Green talks about some communication patterns to, mind, to be mindful that are not helpful, that can be easy to fall into. Um, one of them that he mentions is speculating why your child behaves a certain way. For example, he doesn't listen to us because he thinks he's so much smarter than us. And in the book, the parents actually said it out loud and the child was right there listening. And so it just didn't go well. Um, but he said, it's better to drill for information rather than speculate about it. Speculation is a no-win proposition, but collaboration is a win-win proposition. Yeah, and I know sometimes like my, I really can't get my boys to let me know what's going on. So I kind of have to speculate, but um, it's more of a, could it be A, is this the problem? Or could it be B? <laughs> like, right um, and I like you know don't feel bad if you have to do that but if possible if you can take the guess work out then you'll have a more solid foundation to build all of the solutions on and I also love don't think your mind reading and and really leave all the value judgments out of it too right and kind of what you're talking about reminds me more of um what we were talking about earlier with maybe making a hypothesis or like based on like an educated guess based on past experience rather than like well he just doesn't listen to us because he thinks he's smarter or that kind of thing yeah or um, telling your child like it's okay I see you're not doing your homework because you're lazy like right mm. <laughs> yeah that's not gonna go well that's just asking for contention yeah yeah I may have done that a time or two and I as well. <laughs> We've probably all been there. Yes. Um, and then he mentions overgeneralizing. For example, why is it that you never do your homework? Um, some kids, and you know, maybe it's just you've seen them not do it a couple times or whatever, but some kids um, can overpass that overgeneralizing and get to the real issue and it doesn't really phase them that much. But behaviorally challenging kids often react strongly. And they lack the skills to respond appropriately with the correct information. So that's not going to go over well. Yeah. And I've noticed sometimes we have this, I don't know if it's my ADHD, like if, if we're parenting with ADHD and we need to pay special attention, or if it's just another little quirk that I have or whatever, but sometimes I have a, just an all or nothing mindset, like, oh, he's, even though maybe he did his homework for two weeks without missing a night he misses two in a row and suddenly my mind's like oh look he never does his homework and if I feel this all or nothing going off to stop before I say anything about it and really pick it apart okay is it that he never does his homework or did he miss doing it for two nights let's be really exact and 
I see, oh, he's picked on his brother six times today. And I might go, oh, you are always picking on your brother. You won't stop picking on him today. When if I stop and think about it, those six times were like 30 seconds each. And so we're looking at 180 seconds out of the day that he was picking on his brother. There's plenty of times he wasn't. And so being more exact, like you've, you have been picking on your brother more than I like maybe, but just even though that wouldn't even help in plan B. So don't use that example, but <laughs> the idea of try to um, be really exact and watch out for the all or nothings. Yes. And I've done the overgeneralizing and then I've heard my kids overgeneralizing with each other. Like you always do this. You never do this. Um, so that is something that I'm trying to be more mindful of now. So I'm really glad that he pointed it out. Um, and then another um, roadblock with communication is perfectionism. Um, it sometimes prevents parents from acknowledging the progress their child has made. And this is kind of along what we were just talking about. Um, but it might be more like clinging to a prior unrealistic version of their child's capabilities rather than where they are now. And perfectionism is usually driven less by the child's lack of progress and more by the parent's anxiety that they're projecting on the child. And this is definitely counterproductive. Um, and then sarcasm is another one. Often it's totally lost on behaviorally challenging kids, especially those black and white thinkers. Um, they lack the skills to figure out that the parent really means the opposite of what they're saying. So not a good approach. And I'm just going to say, yes, I really, really discourage using sarcasm at all with children. They don't, it just really doesn't seem to help. Usually sarcasm is used to kind of, in a, in a put down manner, like, oh, I see you just know everything. And like, it's not a positive message to send if they understand the sarcasm and if they right. don't understand the sarcasm then you're just messing with your communication anyways <laughs> so either way like I really recommend if you want to be conscious and intentional in your parenting to take the sarcasm out and it will help clear up so many communication things yes um, and then a few others that he mentioned are put downs of course we don't want to do that um, catastrophizing, which is greatly exaggerating the effect of the child's current behavior on their future. So for example, um, he's probably just gonna end up in jail someday. Like you're looking at the worst possible outcome and just going with that. Um, or interrupting them, lecturing, dwelling on the past rather than focusing on progress, talking through a third person. Um, example, you're not allowed to do this and your father will tell you why, right, dear? So like talking to the your husband right in front of him and um, kind of putting it, like talking through them about the child. Um, so all of these communication patterns are very common um, and they're also very counterproductive. So your goal, you want to change these patterns while utilizing plan B. And this can be difficult and it takes practice. And also, there's no shame if you're having difficulty doing this on your own. Um, he points that out. And one option is to seek help from a reputable therapist who is somewhat familiar with solving problems collaboratively. So that is always an option. 
Um, and then in chapter 11, um, Dr. Green talks about behavioral challenges at school. And he said, um, fortunately, many kids who are behaviorally challenging at home are not at school, which is great if your kid is in that camp. Um, this pattern often, though, reinforces the false belief that a kid's challenging behaviors are intentional, goal-oriented, completely under his control. Um, I was seeing this a lot with one of my kids when he was um, in elementary school and he would come home. I would pick him up from school and he would just completely unleash, like yell and throw things and totally dysregulated. And I would talk to his teachers and they would say, he's totally fine at school. We don't see anything like that. We don't know what you're talking about. It then, sounds like you're describing my child. Like I would, <laughs> I would believe that you're reading my journal or something. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know anyone at the time who was in that situation. And I felt so confused and alone. And I talked to his therapist or we were getting him evaluated at the time. Um, and I talked to that person who was doing the evaluation and she was, she made me feel terrible. Like, well, if he's okay at school and not at home, then it's clearly something's wrong at home because he, he can do well at school. So then the problem must be you basically. So yes, then I, felt I had this, I had a really similar situation and it's like, I'm already dealing with this child exploding all day. And now they're just, uh, I'm so sorry you were in that situation. It's not, it's not pleasant. No, it's not a fun. So if those listening, if you have been through this it's not your fault and it's not all on you and and um he talks a little bit more in just a few minutes like about why um why you might be seeing the behavior like holding it together at school and unleashing at home so yes and as a teacher like I've often and especially the more that I've gone into early childhood where it's it's a really night and day the parent the child's playing fine and they're happy and then the parent shows up to pick them up and suddenly they it's like like a light switch flips and they're crying and they're tugging at their parents and they're like oh my I'm sorry you've had such a difficult child today and I might say your child was wonderful today <laughs> and um I don't think like I don't think it's um the parent's fault I just I've said for years it seems like some kids just have a school personality and some kids have a home personality, but I loved, I loved a lot of his explanations as to why we see that. Yes. So some of these, um, he said there could be a situational factor. So some kids do better with the structure at school because it's predictable. Um, they know what to expect, but maybe certain aspects of the home environment might exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. Maybe it's not as structured. Maybe there's a lot going on, just totally understandable. So that could be one reason. Um, there's also the embarrassment factor. Um, a lot, some kids put extraordinary energy into holding it together at school so that they won't be embarrassed, but at home, they might not be as worried about getting embarrassed. And so since that energy can't be maintained 24 seven, they're going to let it unravel at home. Um, whereas at school, they just try so hard to hold it together. And 
Um, then the, uh, another factor is the chemical factor. So if you have a child who is medicated during school hours, but the medication wears off after school, that's just in time for those challenging behaviors to start presenting at home. So those are some of the reasons why you might be seeing your child hold it together at school. Um, and just because challenging episodes aren't occurring at school doesn't mean unsolved problems at school aren't contributing to challenging behaviors outside of school. So for example, maybe your child is being teased or bullied at school. Maybe they're feeling isolation socially. Um, they might be misunderstood by a teacher or feel misunderstood. They might feel embarrassed over academic struggles, but they're holding it together at school. And then these um, concerns are weighing on them and it's going to come out in their safe place with you at home. Um, and on the other hand, you might actually be seeing um, behavioral problems at school. And if you are, um, that's not uncommon as well. So um, it is possible to use proactive plan B with your child's teacher. And you would um, see, you would use the same familiar ingredients. You want to gather information and understanding with the teacher. You want to consider their concerns and bring your concerns to this table as well. And then you want to brainstorm solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory. So you can totally do that with the teacher as well. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say about challenges at school, Emily, before we go on to chapter 12? Um, not in particular. If there's any teachers listening, I used this today with my class, used Plan B with my class, and it was great. Uh, I And I bring this up because I don't think we have a lot of teacher listeners, but I really enjoy taking a lot of tools that I have and kind of putting them in my tool belt and then applying them in different areas. So it was great. I had, um, we have a little parachute that I got out for the four and five-year-olds and there's um, handles that each child can only have one, but then one child could have two. And usually I take two and say, no, I'm the only one taking two and you all only get one because that's going to keep it fair. And then I get grumbles and complaints. And today I pulled it out. And I, I was like, hmm, I want to experiment with my new toy. <laughs> and so I, I just said, okay, before we play with the parachute, there's a problem. Can you all help me with it? And they were like, oh, what is it, Miss Emily? And, and I said, well, I know that a lot of kids like to hold on to two of the loops on this parachute. But the thing is, there's only enough for each kid to have one can you think of a way for this to be fair for all the kids using the parachute? And what's funny is that the two kids that usually insist that they have to have two loops, they were the first ones to jump in with solutions. And one said, I think everyone should hold one loop and then put one hand on another spot on their parachute that's not a loop. And I was like, I never even thought of that solution. That's a great idea. And then the other student said, I think they should just, if they want to hold on with two hands, put both hands on the one loop. I was like, this is fabulous. And we played with the parachute. And for the first time ever with this group, nobody fought over the loops. So just the idea that this can extend beyond just your own children, you can use the same process in other areas. And it, 
it was a lot of fun. Mm. I love that. I love that you're using it in um, different areas of your life too. And um, as a teacher, that is awesome. Um, so chapter 12, basically he's just kind of wrapping things up. Um, uh, he does give a lot of examples, actually, if you go through and um, if you wanted to look in the book, but he has a lot of questions, like concerns that might arise as you're using this, um, that um, he kind of goes through sort of um, examples, like, what is it, like a case, uh, like a mini case study type of a thing. So that could be helpful to see. Um, but he points out that sometimes it's difficult to notice that um, things are getting better, or maybe they are better than they were, but it's still not easy. It's still kind of difficult. Um, how quickly progress is made and how easy or difficult it is differs for every behaviorally challenging kid and family. The definition of better is different for each of us as well. Um, so the goal is to focus on improvement, and I like to say progress over perfection. Emily and I say that a lot, um, to just keep the focus there. Like, like we were saying earlier in this episode, um, sometimes we don't realize, wow, looking back, like that thing used to be hard, but we got past it, and now it's not as hard anymore. Um, for example, one of my um, twin four-year-olds, I had mentioned in a previous episode, he's had a really hard time staying buckled. He would like unbuckle his car seat all the time. Um, and then when it was time to leave, he would not get buckled. It would take like 10 minutes at least to like, and I'm not exaggerating. I would just sit there and like have to go back there and try to buckle him. And he didn't want me to, and it would be a big ordeal and it was contentious. Um, but now lately, he is buckling quickly most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. And he is staying buckled way more often than not. And so looking back, I can say, wow, like that was a really rough few months, but we have made progress. It's not perfect, but look at the progress we've made. That is such a good feeling. And I, I love that. I remember talking with you about this, um, when it was a lot harder than right now. And I just, I like the idea with all of this proactive approach and what you're saying, the idea of consciously choosing one thing that you're struggling with with your child at a time and tackling that one area, like kind of focusing in on it and then looking back at that one thing and seeing the improvement. I just love that idea. Yes, definitely. Um, it can get overwhelming otherwise, so definitely like focusing in on the one. Absolutely. Um, and then he points out that it's, this isn't just for behaviorally challenging kids, um, but all kids can benefit from this model of having their concerns identified and validated, taking another person's concerns into account, participating in the process of generating and considering alternative solutions to problems, and working towards mutually satisfactory solutions, and resolving disputes and disagreements without conflict. Um, and that all, that all parents can benefit too. Like all of those things that I just listed off, those are such amazing life skills to have. And I really feel grateful that I am learning these things and like really dived in deep to learn them 
because I, I don't think I would have if I didn't feel like so desperate to help my kids who have challenging behaviors. So um, I feel really blessed that I was able to um, learn this and understand it and that I'm applying it with my kids. And even if you don't have behaviorally challenging kids, this is really good stuff and, and can benefit them, it, lifelong benefits for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that is the explosive child. And it was just such great information. Um, I'm excited to keep practicing it with my kids. And if you're listening and you have an experience you want to share or maybe an epiphany about the explosive child or anything like that, we would love to hear from you. Um, because we're kind of in this journey on this journey together. So. You can send us an email at our email address is so new. It uplift inspire love all lowercase no spaces or anything. Uplift inspire love at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Or even better, you can leave us a review <laughs> or um, our algorithm for people to be able to find the podcast. It changes more in our favor the more positive reviews we get especially on apple podcasts but anywhere that you're able to leave a review if you can leave a simple positive review it would help a lot for other people to be able to find this information also absolutely if you feel like anything that we've shared um, so far has been helpful to you um, it might be helpful to another parent out there as well so this is a way that you could help them by leaving a review Awesome. Thank you so much for all of your um, explanations and your time tonight, Ashley. Uh, thanks, Emily. Great. Bye.